We've been away this week, so um, I didn't see the order of service for this morning until um, first thing. I was quite intrigued by it, um, because it says, Jonathan to close by 12am. <laughs> so that gives me 12 hours and 30 minutes. I'll try not to be quiet that long this morning. Well, we move on to a very familiar passage from the Sermon on the Mount, a passage that contains the Lord's Prayer. And I'm a little bit concerned this morning, because there is so much in this passage, it could end up a bit like a pizza with too many toppings on it. You know, you just throw so many different things on there. By the way, that's a hot dog pizza. If you're interested, those are onions on the top. I don't know if you like the look of that. It looks absolutely disgusting, if you ask me. But there could be a danger that there's so much in here that we don't take anything out that actually nourishes us. So it's my prayer today that you don't end up just with a barrage of information, but there are things here that will really speak to us. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6, and the church Bible is on page 917. The reading is also going to be on the screen. Jesus says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honoured by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. But I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. For when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show they are fasting. I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when we hear your teaching, it really cuts us to the core. 
It reveals how far away we can be from your will and your purposes for us. And Lord, I want to pray particularly as we look at what are some of the the most well-known verses in the whole of the Bible this morning, that perhaps you will just illuminate something by your Holy Spirit afresh to us today, that we will see something perhaps we haven't seen before or understand something in a fresh way, that we will do your will, that we will become more like you in our character, in our heart, and in our purposes. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. A few years ago, um, when we were down in Bristol, I remember having a workstation posture review. Has everyone, any, anyone ever had one of those? Where somebody comes and looks how you sat at your chair, at your office, working. My office wasn't quite that bad. But this woman who came to do the review said, you sat on the wrong type of chair, at the wrong sort of desk, and your computer screen is at the wrong angle. I thought, well, am I doing anything right? But apparently not. I was doing everything absolutely wrong. And she said, the result is that you've got really tight hamstrings. She said, it's causing you physical problems. So she got me to do these exercises like this. So I had to lie on the floor and put my legs up against... Has anyone done these exercises? Try them this afternoon. That, that isn't me, no. No, the, the hair didn't miraculously recover as I did these exercises. But you put your leg on the wall and you do all these things to loosen your hamstrings up. And then, having done that, I did feel a little bit better. I hadn't noticed that I was so tense, but it did help to some degree. See, posture is important, isn't it, John? It's really important for you this morning. Posture in our physical beings is really significant. But I don't want to think about physical posture today. I want to think about, if you like, the posture of our hearts before God. We've heard about Billy Graham today. I thought it'd be good to use one of his quotes this morning. It's not the body's posture, but the heart's attitude that counts when we pray. Billy Graham's thing there is it's not about what we do with our physical body, but how we respond to God in our innermost being that matters. As we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, when we um, get to chapter 6, Jesus essentially changes the angle of his teaching. From chapter 5, verse 13, we've had a section that has been in the context of being salt and light. And so what Jesus said is, let your light shine before people so they can see your good works. And then what Jesus has done is he's taught about what the kind of good works of the disciple of Jesus are. Remember, we don't do good works to be saved. We're not trying to earn our way to God. But having been saved, we're then called to live out a life of discipleship. And what we've seen is that Jesus isn't about tick boxing in terms of doing good things. This is not about helping people across the road or making somebody a cup of tea. But this is about a lifestyle that reflects the character of God. So we've looked at things like being loving, being honest, being transparent being reliable in our relationships, non-retaliatory, keepers of our own words. And Jesus says, when these kind of things shine out of our life, other people will praise God. Other people will see Jesus radiating out of us. I sometimes think I'm on a bit of a bandwagon um, when it comes to chapters and verses in the Bible. Does anyone know where the chapters and verses came from that we find in our Bibles? It was a monk who put them in there whilst he was riding on horseback. Um, I can't remember the exact story, but it's it's something like that happened. And he he divided all the Bible. And sometimes he did a very good job. But other times we get quite unnatural divisions of the text. And then editors are put in subtitles as well. And what that means is that sometimes we read the text in little chunks and we lose the big sweep of what's happening in Jesus' teaching. If you've got the chance this afternoon, go after you've done your exercises... 
Go and read the Sermon on the Mount in one sweep. Read the whole lot, and you will get Jesus' teaching much more easily than we do when we read it in little chunks. And we can miss the changing direction that Jesus now brings us to. Because when we get to chapter 6, we move on from good deeds that should be shown to everybody and visible to deeds or acts of righteousness that Jesus then said should be invisible. The stuff that goes on that reflects our heart's attitude before God. Jesus says if we do things for a spiritual show that he's about to talk about, then he says there is no reward from God for them. And he talks about three things in this passage we're looking at today. Giving, praying, and fasting. I think there's often a problem here for us as Christians. It may just be me, but you may relate to this as well. Is that we're actually quite good at doing these acts of righteousness? Or actually quite good at looking like we're doing these acts of righteousness? We do our devotional life in public. We're here this morning in church. What have we done today already? We've prayed. We've done our giving. We've come, we've sung praises to God. We may even talk about fasting. In fact, we have talked about it in thinking about Lent this morning. And if we're very careful, we can fall into the trap. If If we're not very careful, we can fall into the trap that Jesus warns us against. We can end up becoming those kind of hypocrites who do all this external stuff and think that that's actually what God is after. And we can be concerned with the posture of the body, not the posture of the human heart. See, these righteous acts, this behavior that Jesus says is fully necessary, has to start in private devotion, not in public worship. Yet all too often Christians are only noticed for those things that we do in public that should remain hidden. If you've got friends or family or work colleagues who know you are a Christian, why do they know you are a Christian? What is it that singles you out as being a Christian? Is it your abundant love for your enemies? Is it the reliability of your words? Is it the fact that you don't gossip? Is it all these things that are to do with the fruit of the Spirit? Or is it because you are seen to do devotional things, like go to church, like turn up at prayer meetings, like give money? For Jesus, what he says is actually it's the heart that has to change. This external stuff needs to start hidden away deep within us. So let's have a look at what he talks about. Let's look at giving, first of all. We've recently had some teaching on giving, so I don't want to spend a load of time on this, but just two things um, to pick out from what Jesus says. He says, when you give to the needy. This is something that Jesus expects Christians to do. This is not if you give to the needy. But when you give, you know, as a disciple of Jesus, part of our spiritual discipline is that we are people who give selflessly, sacrificially, consistently. Second thing he said is that giving is done in secret. Verse 4, secret giving, giving that only has an eye to God and not to people. Jesus says if you want human recognition for your giving, yes, you can have it, but you won't have God's recognition if you want human recognition. And he says that with prayer as well, and he says it with fasting. Whose recognition do you want? Do you want a reward from God, knowing that you're blessing God's heart by what you're doing? Or do you want people to think that you're looking spiritual? That's basically Jesus' point. When I first um, became a minister, I remember I had to make a very conscious decision about money and church life. Because the treasurer of the church that I did my sort of ministering training posting came to me second week in and said, 
I'd really like to go through the church accounts with you. I thought, well, there's an exciting evening out for me. And he said, what I want to do is I'll show you all the church's expenditure and where all the church's income comes from. And I thought, hold on a minute. I don't want to know where the income comes from. I don't want to know who gives what. That's none of my business. That's between those people and God. Obviously, the treasurer needs to know because that's on the bank statements and things. But I don't need to know. And so at that point, I made a very conscious decision that I will never know who gives what in church life. So I have no idea whether you give sacrificially or whether you don't give anything at all. I don't know. Um, And I think that is God's point. That is Jesus' point. Giving has to be done in secret. It's revealed where the human heart is up to. It may have been John Wesley, I think, who said, you know, the last thing to be converted in a human being is the wallet. (laughs) I think it's quite often true, isn't it? The last thing we give sacrificially is of our money. But that has to be between us and God. It's not for public display. Let's move on. Praying. Seems almost wrong, doesn't it, I think, to zoom over the next few verses because the Lord's Prayer requires a sermon series. It really could take 12 and a half hours to do this justice. So what I'm going to do, I will um, go into this in some detail, but if you go online and you go onto the church website, John preached a really good sermon on this the other Sunday night that is online, I think, isn't it? It is, yeah. Um, So go onto the website, have a listen to that, Um, there's quite a lot more detail that John went into that I won't have time to go into this morning. But a couple of years ago, I was preaching at an ecumenical, a Churches Together service, not here in Lim, so it doesn't involve anybody from around here. And I thought this service had gone reasonably well. Nobody had thrown anything at me. People looked relatively cheerful throughout the service. And so I did um, the polite thing at the end and went and stood on the door to shake people's hands as they were going out. And people were saying pleasant things until this one man stopped, and looked at me piercingly in the eyes, and said, are all you Baptists disobedient to the Lord's will, or is it just you? (laughs) I'm thinking, bless you. (laughs) That wasn't what I was thinking. And then he went on to say, you didn't pray the Lord's Prayer in that service. You were disobedient to God. You did not utter the words of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. So I explained to him, I said, well, I think, yes, we can pray the Lord's Prayer as a prayer, but it's more than just a prayer. It's also a model for prayer. It it shows us the kind of posture we need before God and the kind of priorities that we should have before prayer. But he wasn't having any of it, and he kept on giving me a dressing down, and this was the only time I've ever experienced this happening in church. Somebody came up behind him and literally moved him out of the way, and then I was carrying on shaking people's hands. But what do we do with the Lord's Prayer? What's Jesus' purpose in it? Is it just something we're encouraged to recite? Or is it indeed a model for prayer? Well, I think it's both. Something that we can use it as a prayer. We do do that in church from time to time. But it's also the kind of framework for how Jesus encourages us as disciples to pray. But before we look at the model that Jesus gives us, he again sort of addresses the whole issue about prayer. Prayer should never be used so that we look spiritual in the eyes of other people. Prayer should never be used with the the trumpets and the fanfare to make it look like somehow we're in a place that other people aren't. Jesus says, go and have the internal prayerful posture. Go into your room, shut the door, pray to God who is unseen. And verse 7, don't babble. Don't say meaningless, repetitious words. 
Interesting, that word Babel, it's the only usage of that word in the whole of ancient literature. Some people think it's to do with the Tower of Babel, you know, where language got confused. Other people think it actually may have something to do with the King of Cyrene, who apparently wrote such long, tedious poems that it used to send people to sleep when they listened, and Jesus may actually be referring to that. In a sense, it really doesn't matter. Jesus' point is the pagans were good at babbling prayers. They would stand to go on and on and on with repetition, thinking that if they said more, their gods would listen to them. What does Jesus say? God already knows what you're going to ask for. It's not about long words. It's not about babbling on and on. It's about the heart and what the heart desires before God. See, Jesus is big on honest, heartfelt prayer that seeks to engage directly with our Heavenly Father. With no thought to looking grand, with no thought to looking spiritual in the eyes of human beings, these are the words of a child to a father. Does this mean that we shouldn't pray in public? Is this what Jesus is saying? Well, I would say no, he isn't saying that at all either. Because we find that in other places in the Bible, prayer happens communally. This is from Acts chapter 12, when Peter was in prison. It says, but the church, the collective body of Christ, was earnestly praying for him. But I think what Jesus is saying is that prayer has to start in the heart. It can't just be a public thing if it's not going on deep within us at a private level. Before we look at this prayer, shall we pray it together? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. So Jesus starts, our Father in heaven. See, Jesus' model for prayer doesn't start, dear God, I've got something to ask, please could you, and then dot, dot, dot. Which is so often our temptation in the way we pray, isn't it? We come to God when we have needs. But it starts with a simple declaration of the status of the one to whom we are praying. Our Father in heaven. God, our heavenly Father. I don't know what your experience of fatherhood is, has been in this world. You know, for some of us, we've had good dads. For some of us, the relationship perhaps with our earthly dad has been difficult or even non-existent. But actually what God is, is our perfect heavenly Father. We are his children. That is the implication. If he is our Father, we are his children. He is in heaven. He is named. He is knowable through Jesus. There is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray to the Father because of the work of the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray to God who is in heaven. Now, we need to just get our strange concepts that sometimes float around in our head of heaven as harps and clouds and all those kind of things. Heaven here is about where God's rule and reign is already complete. Jesus says, say, hallowed or holy is your name. The name of God, totally set apart, totally different from anything else we will experience. And by starting our prayer in this way, we orientate ourselves correctly before the awesomeness, yet intimate nature of God. You know, there's two things that seem sort of opposed to one another, awesome and intimate. 
are combined in our Heavenly Father. And when we are faced with the awesomeness of God, surrendering deeply to him, the posture of our heart is challenged and changes. Because prayer can easily become a list of things we want God to stop, start, or amend, can't it? Rather than actually focusing on who God is and what he desires for us. So Jesus moves us on. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. We don't even yet in this prayer come to any of our needs. This is not about the things that we want to pray for, but it's rather saying to the Lord, your will, those things that are on your heart, those things that are your purposes, may they come to pass. See, God's will stretches from way beyond the creation of the world to way beyond time and space having any meaning at all. And this prayer is that the place where God's will is currently complete, the heavens where his will is already reigning supreme, may become united with earth where his will is not yet totally um, as it should be. You know, we live in a fallen and broken world, don't we? Now, this is tricky here, and we can tilt too far in either direction. With the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is announced. With the coming of Jesus, God's rule and reign begins in our hearts, in our lives. So today, if you make a decision to, to walk with Jesus, that is God's kingdom breaking out in your life. If as a church we are obedient to the will of God, that is God's kingdom increasing. But we only get a foretaste in this life. We only get a glimpse of that which is yet to come. The best experience of God's rule and reign now, perhaps we see it in a transformed life or a healing or a deliverance or whatever else it may be, will be nothing compared to what we see when Jesus returns and God's rule and reign becomes all in all. We were in a a farm shop yesterday morning in Conway. Um, and you know these farm shops, that they always seem to have samples out of all different types of food. And you go around, you basically have a free meal. And um, I tried various different things. But there was this grape juice that was for sale. And it was some posh grape that was normally used for making wine that they were just selling as grape juice. So I, t- I tried it. It was absolutely revolting. I don't know why anyone was paying sort of eight pounds for a bottle of this, this grape juice. The thing is, you get a taster of something, and then you go and buy the bottle, and it's exactly the same, just more of it, isn't it? We see a taster of the kingdom of God in our experience now. But actually, what is to come is far greater than we could ever imagine. Far, far greater. To me, what we see is the glimpse through the keyhole. Paul calls it as we see through a glass dimly. And so this prayer, this prayer for, Lord, would your reign be complete in heaven and on earth, would the two be aligned, is a prayer that will only see its final fulfillment when Jesus returns in glory. It's a prayer that has, if you like, an end-time hope to it, or if you want the posh theological term, an eschatological hope, that looking forward to when Jesus returns. But you know, we're called to pray this for now as well, aren't we? This is not just a prayer for, for something that is so far off. It's a prayer for the immediate as well that God's will will break into our lives, that we will see the kingdom of God come, even those little glimpses of the foretaste here and now. Be that in the transformed life, be that in a physical healing, whatever way it is, we're encouraged to pray for that. How do we know what God's will is? That's the question, isn't it? How do we pray within the will of God? We keep coming back to these verses in Romans, Romans chapter 12. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do we know what God's will is? We become transformed to be like Jesus. We get to know Jesus more. We understand more of who he is. We're transformed by the Holy Spirit. Does that mean we'll always get it right? No. We're human beings, we're broken, we're fallen. But it means we start to see more of our desires aligned with the will of God. And the rest we just keep praying, Lord, your will be done in this situation. May your kingdom come. Give us today. It's only now as our heart posture is correct before God, both with the character and the sovereign will of God, that Jesus encourages us to pray for anything that's to do with ourselves, actually. And this is a very simple prayer, prayer for daily bread. And this prayer, I think, is actually very much what it says on the tin. You know, in Jesus' day, people didn't have um, long, complicated job contracts often. What most people do, particularly working-class people, is if you got up in the morning, you would go down to the place where laborers were hired, supposing you worked as an agricultural worker or in the harbor or whatever it was, and you would hope that somebody would hire you for the day. It was like sort of zero-hours contracts par excellence. It was that type of way of operating. And so it was quite a, a real thing to pray, Lord, would you give me a job for today? Would you give me my daily bread, the money to earn my daily bread? Because much of life was lived in that kind of way. But actually, Jesus doesn't say, pray for your financial security for your upcoming retirement. Nor does he say, pray for the stability of interest rates to keep your savings high or your mortgages low, depending on which way it happens to suit you the best. No, what Jesus says is keep our prayer simple. Keep our dependency on God high. So that we are praying, like he encouraged the people of his day, for our daily needs. Not for our daily wants, not for those things that go beyond what we actually need, but for the things of sustenance. You know, bread is the prayer here. But it could uncover those things, you know, a place to live, clothes to wear, those kind of things we need on a daily basis. don't know about you, but sometimes the prayers that I find myself praying get very complex. And they can include lots of ifs and buts and perhaps and possibly's. This is not a complex prayer. It's dead simple, isn't it? Give us this day our daily bread. God, as I wake in the morning, would you give me all that I need for that day? What does Jesus say? Don't worry about tomorrow. I have enough worries. Just think about now. Think about today. Pray for your needs today. One sentence, and then Jesus moves us on. Forgive us our debts. We move now on to confession. The heart posture of the disciple is that actually we know we need forgiveness. That's what the cross is about, isn't it? Our desperate need of forgiveness that only Jesus can bring. But it's interesting that there's six requests in this prayer, and this one is number four. Listening to, to people who criticize the church, and I know Ralph um, was praying for, for some atheists who would, would exactly use this in the illustration, they would say that actually over the centuries, the church has done a very good job of making people feel guilty. And that seems to be the primary reason, thing that the church has done. You know, you're all sinners, you're, you're bad, you're evil, you're this, that, and the other. The Bible doesn't shirk away from that. We are sinners, we need a saviour. But Jesus put this low, he puts it under list number four in the prayer. We've got to get our posture right before God, understand who God is, before we can then understand and be ready to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. You know, as Baptists, 
as evangelical Christians, I don't think we're that great at confession. I don't think we're that great at doing the kind of thing that Jesus here talks about. Regularly coming to God and saying, actually, God, I've messed up. I need forgiveness. I've said something. I've done something wrong. You know, we were part of an Anglican church for a number of years, and every week they took time in their services to confess, to say that actually things have not gone exactly as they should have done this week. Now, we do lots of other things, but this isn't part of our sort of tradition, but it needs to be part of our regular devotional life, even if we don't do it together, to come to God and say, forgive me, and to help me to forgive other people. Lead us not into temptation and then deliver us from evil. I don't know if you heard on the news a few weeks back, but the Pope weighed into an argument about this. Um, and he was suggesting that actually the word temptation in the Lord's Prayer needs changing because it's not a very accurate translation and it suggests that it's actually God may tempt us to do evil. Now actually the word for temptation can equally mean testing as it can mean temptation. But whatever the actual word there means, I think the implications are really straightforward. Heavenly Father, would you keep us away from those times that trip us up? those things that cause us to fall, those things that test us, those things that tempt us to do stuff that we know you don't want us to do. And deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the one who wants to trip us up, the one who wants us to fall. Would you keep us safe? Would you keep us away from him? Would you keep us away from wrong paths? And so the prayer ends effectively with a plea from the heart to say, Heavenly Father, Keep us on the right path. Keep us in your will. Keep us um, sort of plugged into the way that you want us to live. So how is your heart posture before God today? Are you somebody who deep inside your being responds to God in private? Do you have a deep and personal prayer life? Or do you just say prayers without the heart being engaged? See, it's easy to babble. It's much harder to go into the quietness of your room and pour out your heart to your Heavenly Father. Phil Jump, who's one of the regional ministers, he wrote um, what I think is a really excellent article encouraging us as Christians to not only be prayers, but be people who are constantly prayerful. That means that our whole life becomes submerged in prayer. Really, what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. You see, I don't think Paul means go to a prayer meeting and just stay there indefinitely. But actually what he's talking about is having a life that is rooted in our response to God from the heart in prayer. That it just becomes such a natural part of who we are, that we live with a, a correct sort of image of who God is in our minds, that we are postured correctly before him at all times. Very briefly then, the third thing Jesus talks about. Fasting. Again, Jesus really highlights the same issue. People would fast in Jesus' day, but they'd let their face know about it. And so they'd go around, you know, perhaps not eating the food that they would normally eat, and having the most miserable expression on their face. So that when you said, why are you looking like that? Oh, I'm fasting. And then people think, oh, they're very spiritual. I'll, I'll just leave them alone. But actually, Jesus says that and does the whole thing. Because actually... You can't have 
the praise of human beings and the praise of God. You want fasting to mean anything? Put oil on your face. That's just a sort of thing. Wash your face, basically. Look your best. Go out and don't tell anybody what you're doing. This is about the personal devotional life again. John Piper writes about fasting. He says, fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that is in itself good, like food, in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and his work in our lives. See, we're encouraged to fast, don't we? Jesus takes it for granted that we will fast. But if we do, Jesus says, do it with God in mind, not with people. This stuff needs to stay hidden. Now, I'm conscious that time is running out. We've already had far too many pizza toppings. And we can come back to fasting at another time. But I want to sort of wrap this up, going back to what Billy Graham said. It's not the body's posture, but the heart's attitude that counts when we pray. We could apply that to when we fast, when we give. It's not what people see us doing, but it's what's going on deep inside of us that really matters. Is that what we're doing today? Is our body posture, is our heart attitude in the correct alignment? In our spiritual lives, in our giving, in our praying, in our fasting, are we purely God-focused, seeking God's will? Or do we have an eye out, thinking, I wonder what people think about me? Do people think I look spiritual? In our praying particularly, do we have the kind of prayers that Jesus commands for? Or do we pray simply according to our own desires and our own wishes? Is our heart posture such that we delight to do what God wants? I'm going to read these words from Psalm 51 to finish. Maybe that you want to use these words as a prayer. That God would give us a pure heart, a steadfast spirit. That we'd be kept in his ways. So let's just spend some time in quiet. I'll just read these words and then we'll spend a few moments just reflecting in our own hearts. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Lord Jesus, I want to pray that where perhaps our heart posture isn't right this morning, perhaps where we're thinking more about what other people think of us in terms of how we pray and how we live our devotional life before you, rather than thinking about you, pray, Lord, that you'll realign us. Pray that your Holy Spirit will do a deep work within our hearts. Lord, perhaps where we pray in a way that isn't aligned with how you've called us to pray, would you bring us back onto the path that you would have for us? Lord, it's the attitude of our hearts that count.
Change our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.